I'm Raphael Baer and this is The Bunker, your need to know for news and politics seven days a week. And in this episode, I'm very pleased to be talking to Matt Chorley, a journalist for The Times, for Times Radio and author of a very enjoyable book, Planes, Trains and Toilet Doors, 50 Places That Changed British Politics. So first of all, Welcome to the bunker, Matt. Uh, and second of all, I really enjoyed the book. What really impressed me and surprised me was the historical sort of range of it, the depth of it. And I wonder if, in, in the process of writing it, you were struck more by the the sort of continuity from the past or or the difference. Does it feel like politics has changed that much, or actually is surprisingly not that different? Yeah, so when I had when I had the idea, it was born out of actually Barnard Castle, the English Heritage press release saying that the number of visitors to Barnard Castle had gone up twenty percent since before the pandemic, uh, which um, got me talking on my Times Radio show. We listeners started sending in other other weird places that political nerds might go on holiday, essentially. So that sort of that sort of became the basis, the, the initial basis of the book, and then. Actually, for some reason, I'd landed on 50 because that seemed like a nice big round number. Getting to 50 is quite hard in terms of modern politics without ending up with a lot of Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg uh, in it, which is already quite a bit. And one of my favourite stories in the book is a duel that Pitt the Younger fought with the leader of the opposition. Pitt the Younger was the Prime Minister. George Tierney was active for the opposition in the Commons. They had a row in the Commons. And Tierney did the obvious thing, and he challenged the Prime Minister to a duel. They went to Putney Heath and fired guns at each other. Obviously, that was exactly what any self-respecting opposition figure would do. And basically, to include that one, which is uh, really like a long time ago, what I couldn't do was like 1798 and then jump to 1982. So that that's in sort of slightly dragged me into the past to try and find, I don't know, the birth of opinion polling, the birth of the manifesto, the birth of the election campaign speech. But actually, you're right. That Actually, the thing that struck me, I thought this was going to be a collection of just like funny things, what happens to politicians. And they're all human. And the lesson is interesting things happen to politicians, not in Westminster. And actually, the, the sort of the thing that I felt I learned from it, and I should have realised all along, having been like you in Westminster for almost two decades, is that nothing is new. That whatever we think is the most unprecedented, the most shocking thing that's ever happened in politics has happened before, often exactly the same, if not better. Uh, And so I've actually really enjoyed the process of discovering that, oh, isn't politics crazy, is not only really irritating, it's just not true. It's interesting, you're right, and and the the sheer weirdness and extraordinariness of it actually just before we came on air i was looking at the profumo scandal and the extraordinary combination of just flagrant lying and your filth and sex and sort of geostrategic machination it does remind you that when we say often today you know people in our trade say well it's gone beyond satire or if you tried to script this as fiction people would reject it actually again that's not a new phenomenon yeah yeah, yeah. one of the things though i mean i'm, I'm glad you mentioned the duel and things that have sort of spun out from the House of Commons and Profumo, for example, sort of saying, basically more or less admitting to what he'd done and then saying, but I'm using parliamentary privilege. So I'll sue anyone who says this outside of the Commons. You you necessarily didn't want to make 
the chamber of the House of Commons, the tea rooms, uh, still less you know, the atrium in Portcullis House or any number of airless offices, the, the, <laughs> the scenes, the locations that you used. And yet you and I both know that an awful lot of politics actually happens in things that might as well be kind of porter cabins. You know, I, I wonder whether, you know, again, in that process of, of looking for these 50 places, you found yourself almost willfully ignoring huge amounts of, of what makes politics actually just like a, a boring office job. Yeah, no, I 100% did. Um, and I th- so I had three rules when I was sort of coming up with the list. Um, it shouldn't be in London. I should be able to demonstrate that it did change politics. And uh, it should be a story that isn't well known. And I break all three rules with almost every chapter in some in some way. But actually, the process... So actually, a really good example is the shooting of Spencer Percival, which literally happens in the Houses of Parliament. So yeah, in 1812, Spencer Percival's the Prime Minister. He walks into the House of Commons to go and give evidence to a committee which is investigating something the government's done. Uh, this guy called John Bellingham, who's unhappy that his business failed in Russia and he doesn't think the British government helped him with it, walks up and shoots him. Now, the obvious place that changed British politics is the lobby of the House of Parliament, the, chamber, the, the, the lobby just outside the chamber where he was shot. But in trying to not make that the place, I pulled on the thread and pulled on the thread and pulled on the thread. And on the morning of the assassination... John Bellingham, it was quite an odd guy. And there were various conspiracy theories that was he put up to it by uh, Liverpool traders where he was from who didn't like the fact that Spencer Percival might crack down on slavery or, you know, lots of other conspiracy theories. He does just seem like an odd guy who got things a bit out of proportion uh, to the point he killed the Prime Minister. But that morning he got up and with his landlady and her son, they, they went to the European Museum, which is now uh, uh, an auction, I think it's Christie's in, in London, but it was a European museum with lots of artworks where uh, uh, he went and looked at these sort of paintings. And so I write in the book that basically if the paintings have been slightly more engrossing, the, the assassination might never have happened because he, he spends too long looking at the paintings and the other artworks. And then having to rush to sort of get to Westminster. But luckily for him, Spencer Percival's also running late. Uh, and so they, their paths end up crossing. So actually, I knew nothing about it. I ended up reading sort of Guardian reviews of the exhibitions on in the gallery in order to get a sense of the cut. So that's, you know, that's the bits that actually I really enjoyed doing. That's what makes the book really engaging, though, because it is, you know, as you admit in, in or as you explain, I should rather say in the preface, you know, a, a device that allows you to explore all kinds of byways of political history. And as you say, also, you break the rule that they must always be incredibly influential or not actually happen in London. Uh, I, I, and I think necessarily so, because, as you say, you know, all the different paths and byways, you know, it's not they're not single events, they're narratives that intersect and cover all sorts of, sorts of areas. But I wonder if one of the tests of significance is if you run the counterfactual. So if this thing hadn't happened or had happened differently, you know, if the if the butterfly had fluttered its yeah. wings at a different frequency, how much different would the thing be? And so, for example, the one that really struck me was, and this is going to sound really macabre, but if Nigel Farage had actually been killed in the plane crash, how you know, you know is Brexit the expression of great historical forces, or is it one man's will, you know, and, and sheer monomaniac bloody mindedness that actually completely changed the course of history? And, and there's no right or wrong answer to that question, I suppose. Yeah, and and actually, what's interesting about uh, timing is also very important into how well known a story is. I think so. The perfumo affair that you were talking about, you know, perfumo is just a word now that people use. Everyone goes, oh yeah, perfumo. And actually, you're right. You go back and look at the details; it's completely mad. And actually, the opposite, I think, is true of the Nigel Farage plane crash, because it happened on the day of the 
2010 general election, where he decided to stand against John Burke as the common speaker. Uh, and by convention, the main parties don't stand against the speaker. So Farage thinks, well, I've got more chance there because Labour and the Tories and the Lib Dems won't stand. And he decides on polling day to go up in a very small plane with a vote UKIP, very retro, vote UKIP banner sort of fluttering uh, behind him. Now, the problem with this is that no one on the ground will know that he's in the plane. And despite the fact it might make quite good pictures, nobody's going to use those pictures because TV can't report on any campaign which is happening on the day of the election. And uh, the, pa- you know, the papers aren't interested because they're going to be interested in the results. So he goes up with this thing, and as soon as they take off, they realise there's a problem, and the, the banner's caught up in the, the back of the, the propeller. And Nigel Farage tells this story in his, you know, pretty graphic detail about how he, he just sits there and he thinks, I'm going to crash, I think I might die, what do I do? I can't phone home, that would be weird, what would you say? And a sort of round-robin text, all this goes through his mind. Like, do I send a round-robin text saying, I think I'm about to die? all the best, you know, and then they crash and he's, and he's there and he can feel sort of, you know, the jet fuel and all that. And he gets out and he, he lights a cigarette despite the jet fuel. And then he puts it out. And again, it just gets lost because the 2010 election was David Cameron and the coalition and Gordon Brown and all of that. And the fact that there was a brief moment in time where people remembered the Nigel Farage plane crash, but it was really serious. He became, you know, he was really close to being killed. And, I don't think Nigel Farage won Brexit. I think the way that Vote Leave worked so hard to keep him away from it, and it was the Boris Johnson-Michael Gove show, that wouldn't have happened without Boris Johnson and Michael Gove because Boris Johnson brought the fun, Michael Gove brought a sort of sense of seriousness. However, I don't think we'd have had a referendum had Nigel Farage not survived that plane crash because UKIP was entirely a one-man band affair and, and in fact, because he'd stepped back from the leadership during, in order to fight that seat, and they did it up with a completely mad manifesto that was like, let's bring back proper uniforms on buses. And, uh, you know, it was complete, you know, UKIP completely, every time he stepped away from it, it fell apart. I think you're absolutely right, actually, uh, particularly about the wider impact that UKIP had in that 2010 to 2015 parliament. I remember a Conservative MP slightly mischievously saying that actually it wasn't even sort of Euroscepticism that drove the Tories to have a referendum. Uh, it was the fact that there were sort of angry Conservative MPs who were going to UKIP because they were actually a bit annoyed about gay marriage and other things like that. There were all sorts of other resentments brewing uh, that, that sort of come and then just you know, people being annoyed that the Lib Dems were in government taking cabinet jobs that should have gone to Tories and all that sort of stuff. And Cameron was sort of metrosexual, Notting Hill, latte quaffing, whatever you want to call it, however you want to construe it, um, overly liberal Tory. So yes, I, that, yeah, I think that's that's a correct analysis. And what strikes me with regards to so many of these incidents is the importance of hindsight that makes these things important yeah. that you couldn't have necessarily predicted at the time. And there's, a, and there's an illusory quality to that. And I'm thinking now of the rally in Sheffield uh, where Neil Kinnock appeared just before the 1992 election and did his what is now infamous, all right, kind of a presidential American-style convention thing, which has been narrated you know, as this appalling moment of hubris uh, uh, that actually drove people away. Well, I mean, you, you, you tell the story very well, but uh, you know, it, it's possible also that the polls were just wrong and actually not that many people saw it doesn't really matter. That wasn't actually what cost them the election. It became subsequently emblematic of the, dis- the over-excitement and the subsequent disappointment that Labour had going into that election. Yeah, and in fact, my 
assessment of how it changed politics is less it decided the outcome of the 92 election. And actually re-watching the footage of it, it's even more mad than just the sort of the meme of him shouting before why. You know, he lands in a red helicopter, which is the live footage of which is projected into this arena. The cabinet is introduced as the, the next government of Britain. Um, you know, John Smith, Shadow Charter, gets up and does a sort of weird stand-up routine. Mick Hucknall from Simply Red sings in a video message while also filling in his postal vote and talking about the importance of investing in apprenticeships or something. The whole thing is like completely wild. But I think the way it changed politics, because of the way it was later seen as hubristic and having possibly cost Labour the election, is we haven't that like really stopped the idea of the Americanization of British politics. The balloons and the ticker tape and the pop stars. We're just not very good at that. Like now a rally consists of a of a politician on a small platform with about a dozen party workers wearing t-shirts over their shirts, holding NAF signs. And I think that the tipping point for all of that is the Sheffield rally in 1992. It's interesting, isn't it, that how much or whether the fine line between a stunt that works um, because subsequent victory made it look like part of the narrative that was building towards success and the log flume at Flambard's uh, story, which you can tell us in a second, where, oh, well, I have to mention the context now, is Sir William Hague in the baseball cap. And yes, in my head, I have that as... A, a sort of a significant image of just a sheer misjudged unelectability of Haig. Um, but, you know, you also you make the point in that chapter that actually at the time it didn't feel to them like a terrible mistake. It's only as part of a wider narrative of just being on the wrong side of history that it, it sort of was elevated into that status. So the baseball, the reason the baseball cap is remembered is because it's a great photo. And it's just ridiculous. It's William Hague wearing a baseball cap with his own name on it, which actually he looks so young and stupid in this, you know, and it's raining as my holidays in Cornwall. I remember. I've been on that <laughs> log through many times till my childhood. And it always rains uh, when you go on holiday to Cornwall at least once. And so he's got a sort of cagoule on and a baseball cap with his name on, like he's like it's there so he doesn't get lost. Um, and it, like that's such a, an easy image for people to remember, so much so that people think he also wore the baseball cap to the Notting Hill Carnival, and he didn't. But that's the sort of the thing, and the, it's, the Edstone is the same. It's it's such a sort of like, okay, that's like in a single picture, you have captured everything that was wrong with Ed Miliband. Like it's a, he's got he's standing stupidly. It's this ridiculous monument to nonsense. The the thing the what the pledges written on it don't mean anything. It's like make everything nicer is like one of the pleasures. Um, everyone's it's grey. It just it look, looks rubbish. I mean, one of the things that really struck me about that story when you you because you really excavate the the detail <laughs> of it um, is. Also, it does say something important about political judgment because they knew it was a bad idea, but they did it anyway. And a better campaign and a better organized political leadership would have found, would have listened to the person saying, don't do this. I don't care how late it is. I don't care if you've booked the car park. Don't do it. And they didn't. So actually at that level, the small details that become you know, somehow, I think generally, and maybe you disagree with this, but the, the sort of public judgment can be very cruel and pick on the tiniest things, but it also does have a way of alighting on exactly the right quality of, or property of a candidate that makes them wrong. 
I think I think that's so right. The, the, it, sometimes a picture or a moment captures something of, of the essence of the politician. David Cameron once, you know, went to a barbecue and ate a hot dog with a knife and fork, but that was sort of okay because it fitted with him and he was riding high in the polls at the time and it was fine. When Ed Miliband makes a hash of eating a bacon sandwich, it's sort of summed up, he's a bit awkward, he's not like you and me, he, you know, he's, he, yeah. so that's why that, that sort of thing, I think, catches and then becomes this indelible image. It's why when I wanted to do a chapter on Partygate, I took a suitcase to the co-op on the Strand and filled it with wine, exactly like they did the night before the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral. And it's the suitcase of wine, it's the sick up the walls, it's the broken swing. That's what people remember, not a list of dates and the numbers of fines, that you need something to sort of catch. And that's actually why I think sometimes politicians get away with scandals or misbehaviour or bad judgement because it's a bit complicated, it's a bit technical, or there's not a great picture of it, or there's a, you know, something, when you look back over the politicians who've resigned and the ones who, who haven't, you know, Neil Parrish resigned over looking for chapters online and ended up on a sex website immediately, because it was such a like, oh my God thing, in a way that Chris Pincher had to be dragged out of the comments, and maybe it tells you something about their personalities, but also because what went on, we didn't really know exactly what he did. It was a place that no normal person's been to. And it's much harder to sort of picture it in the mind's eye. And I think that in politics is a really important factor. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you think that you know, Rishi Sunak also got a fixed penalty notice for attending a party at Downing Street when notionally we were supposed to be keeping social distancing rules. And that's sort of not really part of the story that's told about him. But the photo op where he tried to fill his car up if it wasn't actually his car and then couldn't pay it with contactless. I sort of that caught because it told a more resonant story about what people think Rishi Sunak sort of represents. Exactly right. And in fact, the reason Rishi Sunak got the fine was because he turned up early for a meeting with Boris Johnson. He's the guy that always turns up early to the meeting. You know, and, and actually Boris Johnson wasn't fined for those parties where he's standing holding a glass of wine up so the, whether or not he was fined it actually doesn't matter it was a sort of i always felt that the fines were secondary consideration the public saw the pictures and they they looked up on their phones what was i doing that night and it was doing a zoom quiz with your gran or, or whatever it was and i think that it's, it's it's why an image is so so powerful in politics but they only catch when it it speaks a truth i think about the politician and now the inevitable corollary of that is our old friend Twitter, which is now called X, uh, which we have to mention. And you you weave that in inevitably towards the end of the book. And there's a story of Quasi Quateng learning that he's been sacked, basically, in a tweet. Uh, in was he actually in the back of a ministerial car on a lay-by somewhere on the A4? I got it, but you know, and, and brilliantly near a brewery. Near a brewery, yeah, exactly. And yeah, and I think that's a sign as well of how. The speed of news, the breathlessness of news. Uh, I, part of me, I just thought, well, imagine if, imagine if there'd been Twitter during Profumo or during, you know, if a crowd of journalists had been live tweeting Pitt the Younger fighting a duel. How different, you know, they'd probably all felt they had to keep shooting until one of them died just to sort of satisfy the lobby. Well, that comes out, brings us back to the, that, the first question, really, about how, w- whether there is now a, a chronic unseriousness. I mean, I know, you know Gladstone's 
three-hour speeches are probably at the extreme end of the spectrum. But you know, I'm always very wary of imagining there was some golden age where politics was more serious. You know, first of all, yeah, the, the, the franchise was different in those days. So the idea that democracy was better because you know, barely you know, more than half of people couldn't even vote seems to me absurd. But you know, there is, I sense, a, a line that has been crossed, particularly with the sort of, as you say, the acceleration of the news cycle through social media, where it's much harder to distinguish between what's urgent and what's actually important. And you know, I think the fact that people were tracking Kwasi Kwarteng's flight, uh, I, I think, on a, a tra- I remember that reminded me of, do you remember that instance where there was a rumour went around that George Osborne had refused to sit in a second class seat on a train because he had a first class ticket or they wanted, he didn't have a first class ticket. And sort of journalists were sort of rushing off to Houston to try and meet him off the train. It feels to me that yeah, that is not necessarily the best use of the energies of professional journalists trying to hold power to account. I think that's probably right. I think one of the striking things, if you go back sort of 50 years maybe, and, and before that, is the the fact that people didn't hear from politicians for long periods. The, the politicians were left alone, not left alone in the sense that they you know didn't do anything, but I think sometimes the current... Twitterfication of politics, if you like, confuses noise with scrutiny. That if we're constantly pointing things out and slagging things off, yeah, in some way this amounts to sort of like all the president's men and it's it's deep threat. We're going to bring down the president or the prime minister right now with this tedious observation. And we're all slightly guilty of it. And it's chasing retweets rather than like thinking about the the, the outcome of it. But I think clearly there wasn't a golden age. And actually, you know, talking about Profumo, that was clearly a tipping point where for a long time, cabinet ministers went about having their affairs and they were left to it. And then <laughs> everyone stopped doing that. And, you know, suddenly you couldn't have your affairs anymore. And, you you know, you look, you look to like the early 90s after John Major did his back to basic speech and there was a never ending stream of politicians having their affairs. And do politicians still have affairs now? Yes. Uh, is it, Something that we can report on in the same way? No, not really, because the public interest isn't there. So these things go in cycles. Your book, I will finish on this point, is fantastic for getting the perspective between the detail and the understanding that humanises your subjects with the kind of necessary scepticism and distance uh, that makes it analytically very worthwhile. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, basically, it, it, it's it's what I've always liked to do in journalism, whether it's print journalism, uh, you know, writing political emails, now being on the radio. I want people to understand politics more. Some of that comes with getting close to these people, but I think there's a difference between sending a text to someone when they've had a bereavement and inviting a cabinet minister to your wedding. And I think there's a you can you know you can there's a there's a juggling out there. And ultimately, I'd much rather explain what's going on and have the freedom to take the piss. And I think that's a that, maybe that's basically what I like to do the most because it's quite a good way of hooking people into what's, what's really going on. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in the New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? 
That's Oh God, What Now? With me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get ad-free episodes of The Bunker in addition to that warm feeling you get from knowing you're supporting independent media. I'm Raphael Baer. Thanks for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Raphael Baer. The producers were Chris Jones and Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Listener.